Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Holly Payne, the host of Page One, a podcast that celebrates the stories and craft that go into writing the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. Now, all master storytellers will tell you that the first page is often their most rewritten page because it has to work so hard to achieve so much, hooking the reader, hooking you. And today, we have the honor of talking with best-selling author Robert Dagoni about his most recent book, *The World Played Chess*, published by Lake Union Publishing in September. Dagoni is the critically acclaimed New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and number one Amazon charts best-selling author of the Tracy Crosswhite Police series, which is set in Seattle and has sold more than seven million books worldwide. He's also the author of the Charles Jenkins espionage series and the David Sloan series of legal thrillers. He's written several standalone books, including the nonfiction expose, The Cyanide Canary, which was a Washington Post best book of the year. And he's written three other standalone novels, The Seventh Canon and Damage Control and the recent The Extraordinary Life of Sam Hell, for which he won an audiophile earphones award for narration. Several of his novels have been optioned for movies and television series, and most recently, if I'm correct, The Extraordinary Life of Sam Hell. Dagoni is the recipient of the Nancy Pearl Book Award for Fiction and a three-time winner of the Friends of Mystery Spotted Owl Award for Best Novel set in the Pacific Northwest. He's a two-time finalist for the Thriller Awards and the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction, and a finalist for the Silver Falchion Award for Mystery and the Mystery Writers of America Edgar Awards. Robert Dugoni's books are sold in more than 25 countries and have been translated into more than 30 languages. You can visit his website at www.robertdugonibooks. That's Robert, R-O-B-E-R-T, Dugoni, D-U-G-O-N-I, books.com. And follow him on Twitter at Robert Dugoni and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash author Robert Dugoni. Robert Dagoni, what a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome to page one. What a what a mouthful that all was, huh? <laughs> hey, when you when you achieve a lot, it, it's a wonderful mouthful. Let me tell you. I like to I like to tell people when I get an a, an introduction that's that gracious. I feel like George Costanza from Seinfeld, <laughs> where he learned that you can never get any better than that. You should just leave the room immediately. <laughs> well, we don't want you to leave. We're we're waiting for you with bated breath. <laughs> I'm really excited to dive into the first page of your most recent novel, The World Played Chess. And before we do that, I just want to remind our listeners that we have an open submission now on the Page One podcast for writers who would like to share the first page of their book and get a little supportive feedback from one of Page One's master storytellers. Today, that courageous author is Tom Joyce, and we'll hear from him at the end of this episode as Bob shares some quick thoughts about the first page of Tom's debut novel, The Missing Piece, which is P-A-C-E. Okay, but now we're going to go back to chess, checkers, hope, faith, and surviving. So Bob, I'd like to share your book's summary with our listeners because we're going to avoid all spoilers on page one. After all, we're here to discuss your first page. And I want to read the summary of this very emotionally arresting novel, The World Played Chess. So here goes. In 1979, Vincent Bianco has just graduated high school. His only desire, collect a little beer money and enjoy his final summer before college. So he lands a job as a laborer on a construction crew. Working alongside two Vietnam vets, one suffering from PTSD, Vincent gets the education of a lifetime. 
Now, 40 years later, with his own son leaving for college, the lessons of that summer, Vincent's last taste of innocence and first taste of real life, dramatically unfold in a novel about breaking away, shaping a life, and seeking one's own destiny. So, Bob, will you please read the first page from the World Play Test? I will. It's a beautiful cover. They did a beautiful job for me. They sure did. It's a great cover. It is so provocative. All right. Page one. Prologue. A purpose, I have learned, is rarely found, but revealed. Only when I do not search does the purpose become clear. So it would be with William Goodman's journal. I had no idea why he sent it to me, but his purpose would reveal itself in time. William mailed the journal he kept in Vietnam in a five by eight manila envelope addressed simply to Vincenzo, without my last name, Bianco. Scrawled in blue ink, the crude numbers and letters appeared rushed, as if William had quickly written the name and my Burlingame address, perhaps worried he might change his mind before he mailed the envelope. He did not provide his name or a return address, but I knew the sender. I had not heard that version of my name in nearly 40 years, nor had I seen or spoken with the only person who had routinely used it. William's package arrived on a Saturday via regular mail with eight American flag postage stamps in the upper right corner. That caught my attention. I opened the envelope with more than a little curiosity and I pulled out a rectangular tiger chewing tobacco tin, the orange and gold leaf scratched and aged and the four corners, one of which had a dent displaying flakes of rust. I held the tin like a religious relic, uncertain what it could possibly contain or if I wanted to open it. That's a great first page. And yeah, and it's so great to hear your voice reading it. Um, I am drawn back to the very first sentence and you have one of those kind of openers that just make you go like this, like, wow, all right, I'm, I'm in for something because there's a great promise that you're setting up here. And for those of you who just are tuning in, that first line is, a purpose I have learned is rarely found but revealed. Only when I do not search does the purpose become clear. So I want you to open there and talk to us a little bit about those lines because I'm curious when they came, if they were the lucky ones that just like, you know, fell out of the sky one day and you're like, that's my first line. We want to know that too. We might not be happy and we might struggle hearing that as a truth, but I am really curious. They're, they're such great lines and they raise so many questions. Yeah. And that's, that's really what, what you're trying to do as an author is, is you're trying to raise questions with that first sentence that will draw a reader in. Um, readers are by nature curious. And so if you, if you raise a question in that opening sentence, you, a, a reader will want to find what's the answer to that question. So, you know, for me, I'm not an outliner. I don't spend a lot of time thinking where my story is going to go or how I'm going to get there. And I honestly can't tell you whether or not I opened with that line or didn't open with that line. But it's sort of one of those prolific things in all of our lives where something happens to us or we receive something and we want to know why immediately. But that answer doesn't come that, that simply. A lot of things in our life come about later when we're really not thinking about it. And I'll give you a perfect example in my life, which is something I think all writers can relate to. 
in, uh, I don't remember what year it was, but I want to say 2012, something like that. I was let go by one of the big five publishers. I was in New York City for Thriller Fest and they released me. They basically said, your last book didn't sell enough copies and, you know, we're not going to continue with the series. So good luck. And I went back to my hotel room that night and I, and I was sharing a, a suite at the, uh, at the hotel with two friends. And um, I was doing my George Costanza. And I was sitting on the floor and I was saying to them, uh, I could be a sportscaster. You know, and they were saying, well, you kind of have to have played sports to get those jobs. And, you know, that whole scene where George is lamenting quitting and what he's going to do now. It was not a happy time in my life. I made, you know, I made light of it and, and I, I laugh about it now, but I, I didn't understand it. And there was a lot of things that, that had happened and I could cast a lot of blame on a lot of different people. But the bottom line was, it, it was what it was. Um, I was not going to change anyone's mind. I, I had been released. And um, it wasn't until sometime later when I realized it was such a blessing. What had happened to me, my agent said to me, write a new series. And I found Tracy Crossfight. And then publishing houses looked at my past numbers and said, well, his last book didn't do very well. And so I ended up at Thomas and Mercer, who wanted me all along. I mean, they had been after me for almost two years. And I went to lunch with them. There was 12 people there. And they were, they were telling me things I had never even known about who was reading my books and, and all those things. And I had written My Sister's Grave. And that book went viral, which launched really my career uh, to where it is now. So, you know, in that moment of darkness... You know, it was difficult to see the light, but in time it was revealed. And, you know, that has happened to me on a number of occasions. And I'm sure it's happened to a lot of your listeners where, you know, what we think is a bad moment in our lives, we will suddenly realize with perspective was a blessing. Yeah. Well, and that really draws in this story. I mean, the overall, and I know I can't talk about anything else really beyond this first page in terms of plot, but thematically, that's really what is happening in this story, right? That's, that's the big reveal. And that is like the classic hero's journey, you know, that, that your narrator is going through. Can you talk to us more about the reveal that this particular narrator has and how that was obviously directly related to your own personal life. This is probably the most personal book you've written, right? Yeah, this, this and Sam Hell were really very, very personal. You know, um, I like to challenge myself when I'm writing novels and, and I've written 22 or 23 now. But this, this, what this first sentence is, is a call to adventure. The very first sentence, I've never done that before. I've never had the first sentence of a novel be the call to adventure in a story. There's no background here. You don't know who Vincent is. You don't know what his ordinary world is. You don't know where, nothing. It's, it's, he has received a package in the mail and he opens it and the contents of that package change his life immediately. I wanted the reader to become immersed in the story immediately. And the reason why I did that is because the character in the novel, William, who wrote the journal about Vietnam, he was one day walking the streets of New Jersey, and the next day he was in the bush in Vietnam. I mean, it was 
that almost that quick. You know, he went through boot camp and things like that. And a lot of Vietnam veterans came home just as quickly. One day they're in the bush and the next day, boom, they're out. And so their call to adventure happened immediately. I wanted the reader to become immersed in the story immediately. And my summer of 1979, uh, which is when this book, you know, takes place, at least a portion of it takes place in 1979, when Vincent is 18 years old, was my summer of 1979. I graduated from Sarah High School in San Mateo, which was an all-boys school. I lived in a very, very tight bubble. The world of, of girls and women and all that was, was foreign to me. I didn't go to school with, with young women. I grew up in the town Burlingame, which at the time was a, a sleepy little middle-class neighborhood, predominantly white predominantly middle class, some upper class, but predominantly middle class, that bubble existed uh, around me. And my oldest sister's boyfriend was working a job. And I got up one morning with a hangover because I had been out with my friends drinking beer the night before. And uh, he laughed at me and he said, uh, what are you doing this summer? And, um, you know, I'd always worked because I had to pay for a lot of my own education in college. I'm one of 10 kids. So it was something that we were expected to do. And I said, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm not working at the gas station anymore because it's a whole bunch of things had happened. Uh, the owner lost the station, et cetera. And he said, well, I got a job for you as a laborer. Do you want it? And I said, yeah, okay. And he said, well, get dressed and come down. I said, today? And he's like, yeah. So I went down to this construction crew and um, it was two guys and my brother-in-law. They were both Vietnam vets. One was an army Vietnam vet and one was a Marine. You talk about suddenly being having that bubble around you pierced. Um, they didn't talk uh, often about it, but we would get done working and the subject would come up and they would start talking a little bit about it. And or we would go out for drinks and we'd be in a bar and, and uh, I was only 18, but they'd get me in. And after a couple of drinks, they'd start talking about it. And so, as I said in, in the book, in the in the world play chess. I became sort of the blank pages of a journal that they could sort of unload their stories on. Because most people who, who know Vietnam veterans will tell you they don't talk much about what happened in Vietnam. And, and that happened to me in writing this book. I had two Vietnam vets help me with the story, one of which asked to remain anonymous. And the other was, is a good friend of mine who was a gunny sergeant in Vietnam. And, uh, but, but others didn't want to talk about it. And so I had to go to um, firsthand accounts that had been written about their experiences in Vietnam and, and what they went through and those kind of things. So it very much tracks a lot of, of what happened to me that summer. And as you and I have talked about before, it's really not a book about war and it's really not a book about Vietnam. It's really a coming of age story. It's, it's like the, the extraordinary life of Sam Hell. It's, it's, uh, it's one person's having that innocence shattered. And it really doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. We've, we've all had that happen where we've had innocence, you know, that, that surrounds us suddenly shattered and we're faced with reality. And it can be a hard punch in the face for a lot of us to yeah. realize that the world is not as we had imagined it. And we are not the center of the universe. Right. Yeah. And you have that great um, line. There's a paragraph in there. It just, it's not too further after this first page, but it talks about that initiation, right? That time of kind of crossing over and 
you and I, you know, spoke a little earlier this week, but I myself personally had one of those experiences. I was run over by a drunk driver mm-hmm. um, two weeks after I graduated from college. And I remember, you know, laying there on the road and looking up at a mountain and realizing like, if I actually was still alive, nothing would be the same. I mean, I remember realizing like that other side of the moment, I, I, I didn't know what to expect, you know, and, and it's been a compass point for me ever since in the way that this was a seminal point for you personally in your own life to have received these stories. It sounds like that really you've carried with you for all of your adult life. Yeah, you know, um, I think you just begin to realize there's a conversation that Vincent and his high school friends have in a in a local bar where he says they were the first generation to grow up without a war. Yeah. And, you know, um, they didn't have to serve in World War One or World War Two or the Korean War or Vietnam. And our life experiences like what you went through change us. Um, we don't look at the world in that same innocence that we once did, we realized that there are things out there that, um, that can hurt us. And, you know, I think that's part of the maturation process for everyone. I can remember thinking that my wife's grandmother, who was, you know, 90 at the time that I met her, was the smartest woman in the world. And I've come to realize as I've, as I've gotten older and my kids have gotten older and I've had to counsel my kids on certain things, but it's not, it's not necessarily intelligence, it's wisdom. Mm-hmm. And wisdom comes with experience. And it's that, it's that realization, that understanding that you get through experiences that makes you realize the world is not perfect, that there are, there are things out there that, that are both good and things out there that can, that can hurt you. And that's, I think that's part of just the maturation process for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that's also something that's carrying through with the story is um, the privilege of growing old, right? The yeah. privilege of gathering enough life experience to actually have the wisdom. And then from that place, especially from a storyteller's perspective, you know, you can't sit down to write until you really stood up to live, right? Isn't that the yeah. saying? And you either live through the research and take it in, in this like hugely compassionate way where you become almost an empath. You almost have to be as a storyteller, but in this instance, you really had these conversations that inspired this entire story. And the story as a standalone novel is, is almost a guide for this initiation. For men in this culture, especially in our country, there is no formal. I mean, you, you guys don't have the biological moment like we do as women going, OK, we're it, this is it. Like we, we could carry we could bring life into the world right now. Like it's it's a game changing moment. Right. But men, men don't have that and they don't have required military service. Like if you're growing up in Israel and the men and women both share that. And I I am curious uh, to, to have you talk about it more because you have sons and I know that one of your sons was very influential in saying dad go back and do more research and have more of the actual Vietnam information in this story so how was this in terms of your own working out how do you guide young men today you know in terms of what is what is Vincent's story in terms of that and and what he's carrying forth as a father and imparting the wisdom that he can to his own son 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I, there is no owner's manual, right? And, and there's, <laughs> there's nothing that teaches you, here's how you be a good man, here's how you be a good husband, here's how you be a good father. Those of us that are lucky enough have good fathers in our lives, good role models in our lives. I had a wonderful dad. I lost him 12 years ago to cancer. And just to back up for a second, you know, I never understood loss because my grandfather died when I was a very, very young boy, you know, two or three years old. And I really understood the privilege of growing old when my best friend died in his 40s from a massive heart attack. And his photographs still adorn my walls in my office here after, gosh, I don't know how long Eddie's been dead, 18, 19 years. And that's when you begin to realize not everyone's going to live forever. And, and that includes you. So getting back to this idea of, of growing old and, and making a mark on the world, well, you, I think the legacy we all leave is, is what we leave behind. And the most precious thing in my life to leave behind are my kids. It's teaching by example. And, and that really came from my father and from a, a very good friend of mine who befriended me when I was a, a young man. And really, I learned a lot from him about what it means to be um, a good, good man, a good person. I say all the time to my son, um, I, I've never done this before, Joe. This is my first time being a dad. I'm going to make mistakes. And I made a mistake. And I apologize to you. That was not the best advice to give you. And, um, you know, I think it's important that we apologize as adults so that our, our children learn and understand that it's okay to be wrong so long as you make it right. And that was really important to me. And, you know, my son is now 25 years old and I can't tell you, you know, how proud I am of him and the person he has become. I have told him on many occasions that he's a better person than I was at his age by far. And so he's also very intuitive and he started to read some of the first drafts of my novel. And he is the one who said to me, you know, I think it's very good dad, but I think it would be much more impactful if we knew what William went through in his year in Vietnam, which has led to what's happening in the present day. And, you know, it just struck me as really a brilliant comment. The question was, could I do it? Could I recreate a year in Vietnam in the form of a journal uh, in a way that was believable and real and, and visceral? And, um, you know, I did what we all do as writers. I went to the sources that I could find from the people that had really truly been there and had been in the bush and had been in the, in the shit, if you will, mm -hmm. and had to deal with it. And um, there's, there's some really fascinating books out there. And I think I read 12 to 15 of them. I watched all the movies you could possibly watch out there on Vietnam, you know, from Platoon to Full Metal Jacket and, and all the others. And, you know, just really wanted to create, you know, what was it like to be 18 years old and suddenly you're in the middle of a jungle in a foreign country with people that don't want you there. People are trying to kill you and you're being told to kill people that you have no beef with. Yeah. You know, you, you, it's not like you got in a school ground fight because something happened. It's just you're suddenly in the jungle and they're, they're telling you to kill those people. You know, that must have just been horrific for those for those young men. And that's what I really wanted to bring out, because that's sort of the, the thing that we were talking about. That, that's getting hit by a car. Yeah. And waking up one day and suddenly going, I'm not the person I was five seconds ago. I'm not the person I was 10 minutes ago. Things have changed for me. Now, yeah. what do I do? Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, for people listening, whether you're, you're writing yourself or aspiring to do this, or you're a curious reader, I think one of the most, you know, important qualities that they have to possess to do this is you have to approach this in the way that Bob, you do so well, which is you write from, from such a heart centered place. And, and I could feel it when I was reading this. And this is a different book, you know, it's a, it's, it's not that you don't bring heart to the other stories too, but this particular topic is so sensitive, but you handle it so well. And, you you know, yes, you're welcome. I mean, you, you did such incredible work to prepare to, to do this. And, you know, I'm always fascinated by, by readers who don't understand that fiction requires this, that when people write novels and you hear someone dismiss fiction, oh, I don't read fiction. Well, why? Right. And, and sometimes their quick answer is, well, it's just kind of made up. <laughs> like, no, it's not. I mean, what you do as a storyteller is you're rendering a world and you have to make that world. I mean, you worked in construction, right? You know about putting things together to make a structure, to make it hold something. That is a lot of work. And to do it well, you know, I appreciate the immense research that you brought to this and hopefully everyone else will too. And, and I noticed at the end of the book, you, you list all of the sources that you read, but it's almost like you can't write a story like this without doing that kind of research because you have to immerse yourself in that world. And how much of that, when you were immersing yourself in this world and writing it, you, you also, don't you change too, as, as an author? I mean, every time you write and you take on something new, it fundamentally changes you because now you've, you've actually stepped into the skin. You've mm-hmm. had to, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fiction requires reality because if your fiction is not real, then people will not believe it. And if they don't believe it, they won't read it. What you as a writer are attempting to create is a, is a character so real, a world so real that the, the reader, when they finish the book, that's the first question on their mind is, I wonder if this is a true story. It happened to me when I read The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. And I actually wrote her and, and said, is this a true story? And she said, sometimes stories just fall in our laps and our job as writers is to get out of the way. And that's really what I think I learned more than anything else probably the last 15 novels I've written is sometimes you just have to get out of the way of the story and let the story unfold in the way that it was meant to unfold. I think too often we try to manipulate the story. We try to fit a square peg in a round hole and the characters in the story are all telling us, no, no, that's, that's, that's not where the story is going. And I think you have to get to a point in your writing career where you're comfortable enough, where you can put yourself in a place, uh, whatever you want to call that, where you are willing to allow the characters to tell the story. And I always tell authors that I teach this, right? The best stories are the ones where you never think about who the author is because you're too busy focused on who the characters are. You know, the characters for me become very real. And, and the best emails I get are from those readers for whom the characters also become very real, who say to me, I closed the book and I felt like I had just lost my best friend. Mm-hmm. You know, I really wanted to find out more about what happens to Sam and Ernie and Mickey. You know, what is William going to be okay? And, and what does Vincent go on to do in you know, all these questions? Because the story has become very real to them. 
I've written nonfiction and nonfiction requires a, a lot of research, but that research is different. That research is to get the technical details and, and to get the, you know, dot your I's and cross your T's and get all those things done. When you're doing fiction, the research is done so that the world in which you have created is very real. And I often liken it to when you read a fantasy novel like The Lord of the Rings, or when you read a science fiction novel like The Martian, you really truly believe that you are in a world filled with orcs, or you really truly believe that you are on Mars and that this poor man is trapped there alone, you know, by himself and is going to die on this planet. When a writer can do that, boy, that's, that's really powerful. Right. I mean, you're painting with the, the letters, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I've always said this and I marvel at it, but I mean, for all of us who do this, all we have is 26 letters at our disposal. That's all the paint we get, right? Yeah. And everyone has the exact same, they come to equal playing field, right? You get 26 letters, play with them, go for it and see how you can combine them to create these experiences, you know, these extraordinary experiences where people believe that they're on Mars or they believe that they're in, in Vietnam or they're crying, you know, and you've never met them and they're a thousand miles away across the world, but yeah. somehow they're receiving the transmission within the story. And I wanted to ask you, I, I read a little bit about, you know, the process with this and with your son asking you kind of having that intuitive hit and that note that was so poignant for you as a, as a writer, because not all the notes that we get are, are great that make us sit up straight, but this one was like, wow, you hit it. You obviously had to dive into this in a way that you didn't expect at the outset. But then I also read that your editor, when you submitted a first draft, right? He or she said, I, I want you to do it better, right? Or something like that. Can you talk about that process? Because I don't think many people understand that this is such a, 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 an exercise in also reduction in terms of you're constantly editing, right? It's a revision and, and, you know, it's all about how much of the stone can you take away till David actually appears in the stone, right? right. Um, what's that like for you? And, you know, how can you talk to people who are listening here to let them know that this is part of the requirement. You have to build up that endurance and you have to build up the enthusiasm to say, okay, I'm going to take these notes and they're right. And I need to, I need to work with them because the truth is inside these notes. Yeah. You know what my, what my editor and I've been with Charlotte for 15 books or so. I mean, she knows my writing. What she said was, what's the point? What's the point? And yeah, initially, you know, my, my response is, what do you mean? What's the point? The point is very clear. Um, you just don't get it. I'm a very big believer in allowing people to do their jobs. And that means if my copy editor thinks I got a word wrong, then let them do their job. If my developmental editor did not get the point of the story, then that's a big red flag. And, you know, I think it's important for authors to not become so egotistical or narcissistic or whatever you want to call it, that they won't take help when help is out there. Yeah. Um, I know, of, and I'm sure you do as well, some really big name authors. And as they wrote books, their books got longer and more difficult to read. And I think it's because there were people were afraid to edit them. Mm. And, um, 
you know, in this, I, I had to put the comments down and then I had to go back and sort of really think about them. And what I realized is that I had written sort of two separate books, but I hadn't meshed them in a way that showed the maturation of Vincent through this journal and what he took from that journal and how he applied that journal then and the lessons learned from that journal um, in, in dealing with his son and, and in, in speaking with his own son and helping his son go from being a boy to a man. I had to go back and, and sort of really rethink the present and, and understand what is it about the present that I can make relatable to what he has learned in his past, both from his personal experience and, and from reading this journal, because the journal is really powerful. I mean, I've had, I've had some people that have read advanced copies and, and they will say that to me is that, wow, I mean, there are some parts of that journal that are really difficult to get through. And that really is the point. Right. You know, it, it, it was very difficult for, for those men and women to get through what they got through, but they got through it. And, and now they have to live with it and move forward. I think that it's important to just listen to what people are telling you, and but to be careful about it, to be judicious about it. You're listening to the Page One podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. I'm Holly Payne, your host and producer, and I interview master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their books. As the author of four novels and a writing coach, I know that the first page of any book has to work so hard to do so much. Hook the reader. So I thought to ask your favorite master storytellers how they do their magic to hook you. I started the podcast this past spring, and after the first few episodes, it occurred to me that maybe someone listening might be curious about how their first page sits with an audience. Writing takes courage, and courage needs a community. So I'm opening up the podcast to any writer who wants to submit the first page of a book they're currently writing. If your page is chosen, you'll be invited onto the show to read it and get live feedback from one of page one's master storytellers. I'm so excited about this. I love when there's a chance for a new author to get discovered. And page one exists to inspire, celebrate, and promote the work of both a known and unknown creative talent. Maybe that's you. If this excites you, please submit your page at hollylynnpayne.com backslash community. That's hollylynnpayne, H-O-L-L-Y-L-Y-N-N-P-A-Y-N-E.com backslash community. And now back to the show. I teach a a writing seminar and um, we take the first 50 pages of 12 students, uh, Stephen James and I, it's called the Novel Writing Intensive, but we're the only ones that critique that manuscript. Because sometimes one of the worst things that can happen is, is when, you know, you get sort of a blind leading the blind situation. And I don't mean that derogatorily. I mean that you have so many different opinions coming in. The writer suddenly loses sight of what the story was supposed to be about. Yeah, absolutely. You know? and, and you have to you have to hold on to that fundamental uh, concept of this is what my story is about. And the critique should really relate to that person's story, not the story that the critiquing partner thinks they should write, but you should critique the story that is actually written. And once I realized that's what Charlotte was doing, I could go back and I could change it. And it made the book immensely more powerful. Well, it's, it's wonderful because um, there's a line here that I actually wrote in that I think comes maybe two, 
two pages in, but I think that this kind of captures where she was guiding you. And thank God that you are, are you know, one of the, the writers that are humble enough to be in service as you were kind of just discussing um, in the way that, that these men, and I don't want to draw a total parallel to kind of being in a war and writing, but there are battles in the storytelling um, creation, you know, where you, you really do have to sit in your, in, in that mind and, and make decisions of where's the best way to go and to have someone kind of offer you that direction and for you to say yes and dive into it is awesome. Right. I mean, it gave you a whole other way to approach this. And there's a line here, if I, I'm going to read it to our listeners, it said, I had also struggled that summer in my own way as Bo would struggle, as all young men struggle to ascend from their teenage years to the mantle of manhood. And I just thought it just captured everything so well in terms of what this is all about, right? Yeah. I mean, these, these young kids, 18 years old, as you said, one day they're here and on the street and the next day they're in the bush and they're fighting in Vietnam and their return was just as abrupt and startling and bewildering and violent and traumatic. I mean, all of those things. So I'm so grateful that you listened to her. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> am, as, I am as well. You know, I mean, and, and to have someone like that, I mean, there's not, there's editors, right? But there's, there's not a whole lot of people that are so good with story from that really that hundred thousand foot view. And that will push you to say, what's the point, right? It's yeah. such a brutal question. What's the point, right? I remember taking a, a screenwriting course with Dove Simmons and, you know, he's, he's an LA guy and he was saying he could teach you everything that you need to know about screenwriting in 30 minutes. I found that really offensive because I, I had taught screenwriting. I'm like, you can't teach everything you need to know, but he did. He drove it home by saying this, we need to know who it's about and why should we care? Yeah. And those are the two most important questions. And clearly she was going there with you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and I, I tell, you know, I, I tell all my, you know, all my students, I, I say the same thing, which is don't hide the goal. What is the reader? What is the character's goal? Right. You have an, you have a, a, a through line of the story. And then in every scene, your character has a goal for that scene, but we should know both. The thrill of reading a novel is not trying to figure out what the goal is. The thrill of, of reading a novel is to see what happens to the character and whether the character achieves the goal that the character is seeking. The easiest, most visual way uh, story that I know is The Wizard of Oz. Hmm. I mean, we know right away what Dorothy, Dorothy wants to get home. Uh, she thinks Aunt Em is dying, that she's broken Aunt Em's heart by running away. And so she just wants to get home. All right. And but the story is about this this young girl trying to get home. Uh, it's a very personal story and, and, and it's a, got a very personal goal. And, you know, you reach that point where, um, you know, you really you really begin to root for her to get home. And that's what good stories are about. It's about it's about readers rooting for the character to achieve what the character is set out to achieve and feeling pain when it appears that the character is not going to get what the character was trying to get. So, you know, I, I, again, I think, I think a lot of times we as authors have to just step back and we have to, we get so close to our story sometimes that we don't see necessarily them uh, as clearly as, as someone who, you know, is reading it for the first time. 
Um, but I, I would say this to, you know, to aspiring writers out there is if you find that person that understands you and understands your writing, you hold on to them with, with both hands very tightly because it's like Elton John and, and uh, his writing partner. Together, they, they were just a force to be reckoned with. And when they separated, they both suffered. Yeah. You know, it's important when you find that right person to hold on to them. Um, because they can make you better. Absolutely. I mean, this is such a the journey and endeavor of, of putting a story like this together, any story. I mean, we all know it's it, this is not an easy thing to do and to pull it off well, where you have you end up with readers who are saying how real it felt and how they felt like they just lost their best friend when they finished reading. It is so hugely intimate, you know, and and having that person and like you said, for anyone who's listening, who is part of these writing groups, be very careful with who you're getting the, your comments back from, because you can have that one or two people that derail you because your subconscious look, is looking for that one person to tell you that negative thing that only reinforces your own doubt, which, which is, you know, every, every writer is struggling to get through their own equation. They're trying to solve their own equation, which is right. the story, Right. right. And by keeping it really clear about this is this is a story about this, right? You almost have to make it so simple. And the complexity that you bring is the relationships. It's bringing depth to the character. That's where you complicate things. But that storyline has to be really simple so you don't get confused in your own forest, right? Yeah, and I mean, you know, surround yourself with positive people. And negative people can just wear you out. Nobody writes a book that is so bad that there's not something good in it. There's, there's always something good in it. it. And, you know, too often we see critique groups to mean criticism. That's not the, what, what a critique group is. A critique group sees both criticism and, and the positives. And, and it's important that, you know, you're in a group that you're surrounded by positive people who see the beauty in your writing and, and see the positives in your writing. Because, you know, it, it, we write by ourselves, you know, I, I sit in this office here for hours upon hours upon hours by myself, which is me and my characters talking to me. You know, I mean, in, in another realm, I'd, I'd probably be uh, put away. Um, and so when you when you do venture out, whether that's to a conference or whether that's to a writer's group, find the people that are positive, you know, find the people that are going to build build you up, not tear you down. Yeah, well, that's a great, that's a great segue for you to read the first paragraph, something that's grabbed you something that has worked really well for you that you're recently reading. I'm always curious to know what what master storytellers are actually reading in the moment. I thought maybe I would read Tom's first paragraph. Oh, okay. All right. For people who are listening, this is Tom Joyce, who submitted uh, the first page of his uh, debut novel. And he actually self-published this through Heretic Press, and it's called The Missing Piece. Right. Um, it's P-E-A-C-E. The other one that I'll read quickly comes from The Green Mile, which I think is absolutely one of the most brilliant books ever written. Let's do, let's do The Green Mile first, okay. and then we'll, we'll end with Tom, because he's, he's going to pop in here later. Okay. So if you saw the movie, which a lot of people did, the movie was terrific. But the book is even better. And the book has, has portions of it that are just incredible. So let me read, let me read the first couple of paragraphs. Is, this is Stephen King. This is Stephen King. 
And it's the green mile. And this, this goes back to making you believe that you're, it's fiction, but it makes you believe that you're, it's reality, that you're reading a true story. This happened in 1932 when the state penitentiary was still at Cold Mountain and the electric chair was there too, of course. The inmates made jokes about the chair, the way people always make jokes about things that frighten them, but can't be gotten away from. They called it Old Sparky or the Big Juicy. They made cracks about the power bill and how Warden Moores would cook his Thanksgiving dinner that fall with his wife, Melinda, too sick to cook. So in one paragraph, he basically first says, this, this is a true story. This is what happened in 1932. So you immediately think you're reading a true story. Then the next thing he does is he talks about the electric chair, which is the death penalty. And the entire book is a book about the death penalty. And it's a book about what happens when you get an innocent man, right, who's condemned to die. But not only is he an innocent man, he might be a miracle. He might be a messenger from God. And your job is to kill him. And that's what the whole story is about. And he, 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 he captures it in five, six sentences right in the beginning. He gives you all the crucial things. I'm the narrator. I'm at a penitentiary in Cold Mountain. And this whole book surrounds the death penalty, the electric chair. It's extraordinary. I mean, he's just, he just nails it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, the thing I like about Stephen King, and one of the things I liked about Tom's first page was it's very visceral. And I always tell my students, I always say to them, your story should be visceral. Readers should read it like they're watching a play on stage. They should be able to see it and smell it and hear it and taste it and feel it. And all those things should just be become very visceral to them. And the thing about King is he does it so subtly that you don't even know it until you stop and you go back and you reread the paragraph and you say, oh, my Lord, he just he just hit my 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 sense of sight, my sense of hearing, my sense of smell, my sense of, in one paragraph. Yeah. And, you know, the reason is because we relate to things that are visceral. Those are the things we remember. We remember things in a very visceral way. I heard a, a, a comment made the other day. This happened with a lot of people, a lot of men that went through PTSD. And it was this is um, they may not know they had PTSD. And this is this was based on um, this is a, a, a medical doctor who was a military doctor whose brother had just um, written a what happened was his father was was needed medical treatment and he flew his father back to New York City for medical treatment. Well, he flew him back on like September 10th, 2001. Oh, my gosh. The next day, September 11th, everything hit. And this man put on his suit, his uh, his military uniform, and he went down to ground zero because he was a doctor and he was hoping to help. Well, sometime later, he was at a conference and 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 someone started talking about 9-11 and what happened in 9-11 and they started doing a slideshow and he started smelling this horrible smell and it was the smell of death and he asked the people at the table what is that smell do you smell that and they said I don't know what you're talking about but for him that was the visceral thing was the smell and it it pulled him right back into that place and that's what a good book does is it captures you viscerally so that you are pulled into the story. You can smell it. You can hear it. You can see it. Everything is there. 
and you're you're not relating to it necessarily with your eyes you're relating it to to it with all your other senses yeah i i had this conversation with another writer the other day a good story is a hologram and you as the writer you you can't be writing it like just reporting and and i people i work with all the time like show me don't tell me show me don't tell me because you can tell me a summary, but you, I want you to take me into that place, which is what you do so well, which is what Stephen King does so well, is you have invested yourself in the world. You have stepped into it three, four dimensionally, right? And that's exactly what you're getting at here is it almost becomes just, it's almost unconscious in terms of the way that you take your words and you're, you're striking all those things. It's because you know that that's exactly what the reader needs if you want to take them on this journey with you, right? If yeah. you want to hit those other emotional things, all of that visceral stuff has to be there or else that world will, will evaporate, right? Yeah. It, it won't hold up. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, we are entertainers, whether you are an artist that paints and people come in and they, they stare at your painting and can stare at your painting for hours because of the beauty and the, the detail and all that, or whether you're a sculptor, or whether you write screenplays or whether you produce movies, direct movies, whatever it is, um, that's what we as writers are. We are entertainers. I always emphasize, are you entertaining us? Am I being entertained? And, and the best way to entertain someone is to put them on that roller coaster and let them go through the ride and experience it. Absolutely. You, know, you could stand on the sideline and you can watch the roller coaster. But that's not the same experience as that feeling you get in your stomach when you go over that hill and all the, you know, all the visceral things that you get, that, that rush of excitement. That's what you want your book to do. You want the reader to sit in a chair and go over the, the roller that's coaster. Right. That's right. It's like you have to enable, you have to give the, the reader agency in it, right? In that world. And, and that's how you do it. Um, so I love that because... What it does is it, it just for everyone who's starting out, it's not about an intellectual exercise, right? It's, yeah. it's not about trying to be above someone or smarter than someone on the page. It's about being accessible. And that's what's so wonderful about your work, Bob, is your voice and your style is so accessible. And yet it's so compelling. There's a, you know, there's a quickness in your, in your cadence. And yet it, you know exactly how much to put down, right? And to create this kind of visceral um, experience for the reader, which kind of is a perfect segue to talk about Tom's work, mm-hmm. because that that first page definitely hits on some things. And uh, for a debut, I know he's, I think he's worked on this novel for, he told me 10 years. It was a big deal that he finally got it out in the world last year. Tom Joyce, welcome to page one. It is such an honor to have you join us today. Thank you so much for submitting your pages. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> will, will you please read the first page of your debut novel, sure. The Missing Piece, which for all the listeners out there, this is also a prologue. So I'm sure Bob will comment on that as well. But Tom, really excited. Please well, go ahead and thank read Thank you your- for having me. And Bob, it's great to meet you. I really appreciate your taking a look at this. And uh, I'm, I've enjoyed uh, your work as well. Anyway, yes, the, the missing piece is uh, actually spelled P-E-A-C-E, which is it's kind of a um, twist on that. Uh, and ironically, the prologue begins uh, on Tuesday, 14 February 1989 in the Hindu Kush of Afghanistan. Kind of a flashback there. So here it is. The air smelled of ozone, tasted metallic, 
and felt like the edge of a knife. Somewhere behind the pilot's eyes, a memory ignited, jolting him back into consciousness. He heard no sound of life in the aft cabin, nothing but a violent wind scouring a fractured canopy somewhere above him, until his own voice began to play back like a damaged tape recording in his ears. Yuri, he could neither feel nor move his crushed legs beneath the gunship's instrument panel. Hand shaking, the pilot lifted his helmet's sun visor and saw the drying blood spattered across his flight suit. It belonged to Ayushin, his weapons system officer, who had been decapitated by his own gun sight on impact. He closed his eyes, drifted, and waited to die. Please, tell me, these are not... Images teased his brain. He could remember gliding over the jagged peaks east of ancient Kapisa and a golden dawn breaking above the snow-choked passes of Nuristan as he banked his helicopter gunship northward toward the distant border of the USSR. Was it just a dream? No, he remembered now. After 10 bloody years, after 15,000 comrades zipped into body bags, the limited contingent Soviet 40th Army was finally withdrawing from Afghanistan. He was going home to Leningrad, to his family. But something had gone terribly wrong. Thank you so much for sharing that, Tom. Thank you so much, Holly. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you, Bob. The opening page is very visceral, and it pulls a reader right in. And that is hard to teach. Some of the things that, that I would comment on are not, are not difficult to teach, not difficult to change. For instance, one of the things that I would tell Tom is, give us a name. Give us a name of the pilot. Because when you give us a name, he's not just the pilot. He's a person. And, and what is now happening to him becomes even more imminent. And there's more empathy because it's a person. It's not just a pilot. And let us know that this is a Russian pilot so that we can begin to understand and, and ask those questions. What's, what is going on here? But that's not a difficult change. That's, a, that's an easy change. But telling someone, well, write more viscerally. Right, right. That, that's difficult. That's a hard thing to do. And, you know, I will, I will read, you know, dozens and dozens of the first 50 pages of manuscripts I have read in, in, in my career. There are some people that just have that ability to emote on a page. And those are usually the people that are successful because yeah. they're, not, they're not writing from up here. Mm-hmm. They're writing from in here. That's right. And and for those who cannot see what Bob is doing right now, he's actually pointing to his chest. And that's that's the heart-centered communication that you need to bring. You know, you it's not about starting up in your head. It's literally if the story is coming from like your gut and your heart. And that's really the driver, you know, for you to show up day after day, revision after revision for years yeah. until you get it right. And it's that you're you're kind of a servant to the story you know no absolutely absolutely uh well i want to thank you i could i could keep talking to you for another three hours at least but um we're at the top of the hour here and i just want to thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing your wisdom and being just so generous with your you know insights on the craft well thank you and and thanks for having me it's you know, it's always a pleasure when people ask you about your job, you know, and, and you get to talk about it. And, and that's the last piece of advice I'll give writers is don't be afraid if you don't know the answer to something to go find someone in that profession and ask them about their job, because 99 out of 100 people are flattered 
to talk about their job. Absolutely. Especially when it's a craft like this. There's so much nuance that goes into being a novelist and creating a story world. If anyone is interested in reaching out to Robert or looking at any of the classes, www.robertdagonibooks.com. And you can follow Bob on Twitter at Robert Dagoni and on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash author Robert Dagoni. Bob, thank you so much to be thank continued. You. Yeah, my, this my has been pleasure. fantastic. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Page One, a podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. I'm the host and producer, Holly Payne, and I interview master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their latest book. If you're an aspiring writer or a book lover curious about how stories are made, the Page One podcast offers inspiration, wisdom, and some tips of the trade from the world's greatest authors. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I can't wait for you to tune into the next one. If you like page one, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast players. And please share this episode with your friends and family. Until then, keep writing. The world needs your stories. And keep reading. Books are medicine for the soul. I hope page one helps you discover something you'll love too. If you want to learn more about my writing coaching or books, you can find me at hollylynnpain.com or on Twitter and Instagram at Holly Lynn Payne. That's H-O-L-L-Y-L-Y-N-N-P-A-Y-N-E, hollylynnpayne.com. Thank you.